0: Hello! Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers, now departing present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours
2: at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's very special bonus episode Christmas and a few other holidays are only a couple days away, so I want to wish everyone a very safe and happy holidays. This week, we are also celebrating the Ozymandias Project's first birthday. In addition to this being the last episode of the year, it also marks the one-year anniversary of starting our Ancient Office Hours podcast. So, to celebrate... I had the immense pleasure of being joined once again by the wonderful and lovely Dr. Kara Cooney, a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. Kara's work centers on coffin reuse, primarily in the 21st dynasty. We had so much fun chatting the first time that I'd actually forgotten to ask her a bunch of questions. Originally, this follow-up chat was going to end up as part of the first episode, but We ended up getting into such a lengthy and interesting conversation that I decided to turn it into its own episode. This time around, we pondered the future of Egyptology, how to get involved in Egyptology without earning a PhD, why the language requirements are a form of gatekeeping, and how to deal with pressure to love your work even if it makes you miserable. It was wonderful to be able to speak with her again. I really hope you'll love this episode. So enjoy it, and I'll speak to y'all in the new year. So what, in your opinion, is the future of Egyptology? Where is the field going to go now?
1: I think that the answer depends on what kind of an Egyptologist you're talking about. In some ways, Egyptology... As it integrates with Egypt, that's where it has to change for the European descent Egyptologists first, right? They have to integrate with Egyptians in a different way. They can't just come in with their money, their big bucks, tell everyone how to do things and run their institutes. And they they need to include Egyptians now as active partners, as peers in their work, not as people they're training or people that they're helping, but as people of whom they ask permission and with whom they work as peers. And I think that for the younger generation, that's expected and learning Arabic and being able to work in the Egyptian language is something that many younger people are doing. So I think that's going to have to happen. It demands an extraordinary amount of training. Arabic is not like learning Spanish, you know? (laughs) It's, um, you shouldn't even call it a language. It's a language family. Whether you learn Levantine Arabic or Iraqi Arabic or Yemeni Arabic, I mean, these are very different languages shared in a language family. So Egyptology will have to change from that perspective, and it's already being demanded. The last International Congress of Egyptologists, we showed up, all we white Um, Egyptologists and sat down and were given translators. And the first speech was in Arabic. And then we got that translated live in our ears. And we were like, oh, you know, and then of course the rest of the conference was in English, which for somebody who grew up as a native English speaker is amazingly easy. In some ways it's easier now than it was when I was coming up, when people would really give papers in French and German and Italian. And you had to try to figure that out. You had to be able to understand it. Now, pretty much everybody gives a paper in English, who wants to converse with everybody around them. So English is still the lingua franca for everyone, including Egyptians, which is not fair, but, you know, it's the way it is. That's the question of, and I, and, and there are many permutations it's much more complicated along that route of what happens to Egyptology within Egypt. Egypt is still bordered and nationalist, and it's its own state. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. And thus, Egyptology as an entity vis-a-vis Egypt will survive now. What happens to Egyptology as it is taught in European and American universities as a PhD subject? There, things get very, very complicated, particularly in the United States. And people are asking the question of classics as well. Many people saw the article about classics that was posted. He wants to save classics from whiteness. Can the field survive? Don oh. El- Padilla Peral. Brilliant article, very polarizing for many people. I agreed with it completely. I think that there are many classicists who know that their field is ancient white studies and that it's problematic to put themselves in a special place fetishize departments that get specialized funding and have a special voice to to tell us what is ancient studies and what is not. It redefines what is antiquity, it redefines what what is a canon, what is classical or not, how can you even say this? So really I think we all need to be doing pre-modern studies. You might specialize in a geographic region to get the language of that place, but it kind of blows everything up. Yeah. Egyptology is dead, as it has been understood for the last hundred some years, and it needs to remake itself into something much broader, much less insular, much more communicative, interdisciplinary, sure. But is there even such a thing as Egypt without Nubia, without Sudan, without the Levant, without the rest of Northeast Africa. But without the Mediterranean, it, it belongs to all of these places. It's a big shift. And there will be some people who are ready for that shift and some people who will just not go there.
2: I'm sure that's a common theme for a lot of people. I mean, I feel like we confront things that are like, are we ready for this? Heck no, of course not. Society's not ready for that. But we always have people saying, okay, well, let's let's start. Let's take some steps. Let's get closer to being ready for, for big change. And I think it's interesting because I've noticed a lot of young people, especially when we talk about like our field is dying or, oh, no, we're just slapped with the we study old, dead, white people. I see a lot of students wanting to go in and say, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be on the front line of this change. I'm going to go get my Ph.D. and I'm going to go in and make them change by publishing and doing all this, that and the other thing. But are these like these fields are already so small. I don't really think we can accommodate just like an influx of hundreds of thousands of more people getting PhDs. So, assuming that not everyone's cut out to get a PhD, what can they do to help us reframe the narrative to help us uh, I mean just just sort of Change societal perceptions. I mean, I you know, the, I suppose it's it's different because it's like there's in academia and then there's out of academia. But if you meet a bunch of people who are all like, I want to help change the field. I want to get a PhD, like what would you tell those people?
1: Oh, yeah. Getting a PhD is not for everybody. Um, I have said this, I've had this conversation with many people. There are many ways to be a part of the field as a donor, volunteer, and not to have to go through the whole academic route. And getting a PhD in many ways is more about losing one's power than gaining it because the entry into that club is so jealously guarded. It's so much out of our control. So much of what we're talking about, and with the last question you just asked me about, how is Egyptology changing? I think things are changing in ways that are very much out of a specific set of academics controls. So classicists can complain all they want. We, you know, In defense of classics, we need classics. Save ancient studies, which is a lot of organization. All of these things exist. But as universities decide who they want to hire next and as jobs shift, an Egyptologist who's very old school retires and somebody who does African ancient studies is hired to replace them and doesn't really come from an Egyptological background, then boom, the field is already started to change. A lot of these things will happen whether the academics who run the field and who gets into a journal want it to or not because people see that the way thing we do these things need to be changed by the personnel. And this is already happening with classics. For example, universities around the land have been populated by classics PhDs and those jobs have always been available. So if you, if you get a job teaching ancient art history or ancient history, which are pretty common at most universities, they generally have come from a classics department. They do Greece, they do Rome, right? And if they do Turkey, they're doing it via Greece or Rome, if they knew North Africa, they're usually doing it via Greece or Rome because there's better data in those places, right? But as things turn, as Black Lives Matter becomes more vocal, as people see how much attention we've given to Western white culture, the more they are replacing those ancient studies positions with non-classicists, with people coming from the ancient Near East with Egyptologists. And we now have a running shot at those jobs in a way that we didn't before. That right there is already changing how the field works so things are happening from that perspective and you know who's who's making those choices and how that's the human race from a systems point of view where you leave the great man theory behind that any one person gets to make any choices in this world and you look to the human race as one big giant organism a fashion trend and what is zeitgeisty and what's considered appropriate what's shameful what's something you have to be embarrassed about what's something that seems cutting edge even if it maybe isn't but whatever this is the way things happen So you can see universities making those shifts, and it's, yeah, in the same way that the university has decided to abandon tenure-track labor in favor of third-party short-term contracts and really gut the professorial leadership of an institution, in the same way that's happened organically all around the United States, you see the same interest in hiring more non-white people. That's kind of chilling, what I just said. Think about those two things converging together. One, the professorial ranks being gutted and everyone being adjunct. And at the same time, that's when you let the black and brown people in. The women, oh, great. Now women are all in control. But it's because we've been let in as they've gutted the system itself. When being a professor was a good job, it was a white male's job. Now it's not a good job. So it doesn't really matter. I suppose if, if that's the way higher education is going to go, it's like we need to have a whole capitalist gutting out. Before we, I can't even answer your question. I don't know what's going to happen even to the American university after this capitalist gut of of what is higher ed.
2: So I wonder then. So if you're committed to getting a PhD or going and being an independent scholar with maybe even just the MA, like is it a smarter bet? I wonder to try to even go into proper academia and like teach or. I know several people who are like, fuck that. I don't want to go into that. I'm just going to go into a public scholarship and set like digital outreach. I'm going to start a YouTube channel and use my degree to do good there. So, so I wonder if like that may be more, I don't want to say consequential, but like academia is just so, it, it, you know, rungs of a ladder. So I'm just like, I don't, that's a tough nut to crack.
1: I don't know how many of my current PhDs are actually going to get jobs at four-year institutions or two-year institutions. I don't know how many of them will get that tenure track job, or how many of them will go out and do different things. I have a feeling it might be 50% or less who actually even get into the academy. And, I, so, and that's okay. I'm not worried about that, because I don't see the PhD as without value. But for those people who don't have a PhD and still want to be a part of the field, I'll mention my own husband, Remy Hiramoto, whom I met as enthusiast and volunteer. I invited him to be a volunteer on my projects because he has so many other skills. He's a really good photographer. So when I needed somebody to accompany me to all of my Coffin's research in Italy. He was the first person I thought of, and I and we were married to different people then. And I invited him and his whole family, his two kids, and then I went with my then husband and my kid. We all went to Italy together for three weeks and photographed Coffin. The ending of that story is is interesting and we don't have enough time. But Remy was able to really come at Egyptology as an engineer working for Boeing, just doing classes for fun. and. It still works with me on on some projects. It certainly still comes with me when I need photographic help. Meets Me in Cairo is a, is a huge support. There, there are many ways into the field. Not all of them end up with you marrying an Egyptologist, though. <laughs> but there's another person I can mention, though. He's kind of a rarefied uh, thing as well. And that's Seamus Blackley. If you follow anyone on Twitter, you should follow him. He's The guy who invented the Xbox, and I contacted him because he was working on a bread project with Serena Love, who's in Australia and got her PhD from Stanford. And he collected yeast from a beer jar in the MFA Boston, and then started making bread with it. And started making the bread before he wrote the article, which is a typical non-PhD thing to do. The bread is amazing and delicious and really cool. And he's able to prove that the microbes are actually ancient and not modern from museum dust or whatever. Otherwise, museum dust bread is really good. I don't know. He's very much a part of a particular aspect of Egyptological research, bread and beer making, fermenting, food ways and such. And I think there are ways into the field from that perspective as well. So it depends on what you're into. You know, if you're into technology, if you're a woodworker, if you're a photographer, I think a lot of people can get into Egyptian studies through a particular skill. Remy got was super important. This is my husband, Remy, got really important to me. And we've talked about this when all of the Nicholas Reeves kerfuffle was, was going around in the media. And when I was able to get my hands on the radar data and I found out Remy read radar, I'm like, you can read radar and he can read radar. And that's, that was super useful to me when everyone was like, there's nothing there. And I'm like, there is, there so is. You never know what your other skill will get you. So that's, I would encourage everyone to then be a badass in another skill. That's what you
2: need. I like that. I like that so much. Although my skill set being very much in classics over here and adjacent things, I like my old dead things. I like photography. I like all that. But I would say, you know, I'm not one of those people who has those cool, just handy, you know, I'm a random engineer. I can do botany or something like just. Nor do I I
1: have any, I don't have any of these skills, Lexi. I can't bake to save my life. If I tried to build anything, it would be a disaster. My husband, Remy's also a kick-ass potter. And now I've got grad students going, let's do a faience experiment. I'm like, oh my God, we could do that in our garage. And these things are being discussed. And I don't like crafty time. I'm not a skilled person, but I am a writer and I'm a good writer. And so that's something that I can do. That's my little superpower. And I'm a good puzzler. I'm a good teacher. I'm very good at leading students through their first book writing project, i.e. their dissertation. I'm just good at at creating a culture of free questioning and radical discourse, making graduate school free of pain and shame and hazing and all of those other things with which it is typically associated. But, you know, I happen to have hit the sweet spot in my job. If I didn't have this job, I think I would, I guess I would just write a bunch of books and that would be my my superhero skill. I don't know. My husband calls me on frozen caveman lawyer. You don't know what that means. <laughs> okay. Uh, so only a couple years ago when I was
2: graduating and coming out right out of college, a baby thinking, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go now? I thought to myself, oh, well, this is now where I... Would love to make a switch into Egyptology or something close to it or incorporate Egypt into classics, maybe doing the Hellenistic period. And then so for a time I was like, I want to go out to UCLA and I wanna study with Kara Kuni because she's awesome and her work is awesome. And then I was like, okay, but I'm I'm not terrible at language. I love learning languages and ancient languages. I'm just not like fast. And so I always worried that the languages would be a hindrance. And then I was like, I want to go study out there, but I know I'm not going to do super well with the languages and that's going to kill me so for someone like that who's like okay well maybe I didn't have the best grades or I'm terrible at science so every single class that had a scientific component to it even like your basic archaeology course I wasn't like terrible but I just wasn't doing like the best so you know when you see people with those like okay well you have some skills but they're not maybe where you want them to be for PhD good you know where do you direct someone who comes to you and just says help I don't know where to go because I want this but I don't know if I can make it
1: Yeah, I mean, first I'll say that there are many people who are in our PhD program for whom languages are not their favorite thing and who are not the quickest um, or the sharpest tool in the shed. And yet we accept all kinds of PhDs. And so there are many who specialize in material culture and are so good at that, that they are able to find their way around that language problem so that that's okay or we have people with other side gigs like they're bioarchaeologists and they can put a set of bones together and i can't do that and that's their own language and that's fine but you're right bad grades in the academic world are not surmountable they're just not yes you could get a second ma and then surmount it in that way, but you have to pay for it. It's not easy. Will your grades, you know, as the old saying goes, you can't turn a C student into an A student. Some people are better at school, whatever that imposed abstract made up thing is than others. And that's okay, because it is all just a construct of how learning is thought to ideally happen when In some communities of practice, that is not the way learning should and does happen at all. My son has learning differences and is a dyslexic, dysgraphic, uh, ADHD, wonder boy. (laughs) He, He has a very hard time reading and writing. And he's almost 11 and his letters are still backwards. And I can see that his brain just turns things. And it is not easy for him, nor enjoyable, to think of reading books. This is not something that helps him To relax, you know, his his stepbrother and sister are powering through all these books, and he just kind of look and just knows that he's different. If dyslexia is ten percent of the male population, I think that's probably underreported. I think there are a lot of people that don't feel comfortable relaxing. I'm so sorry, relaxing into books. And my son is one of them. So I know that that wunderkind that amazingly smart child, will not want to get a PhD. It's not what he's going to want to do. But he's probably going to be used in the kinds of subject matter that could lead in that direction. What, what does one do? I guess you listen to a whole lot of podcasts. You you read in the way that you enjoy reading. And you might look into producing content, creating history in different ways. Why does history have to be consumed through the written word? Why does it have to be analyzed through the written word? Why do we, when we academics want to present an idea, stand at a weird wooden box and put pieces of paper on it and then read shit you're not even having a conversation with anybody you're reading shit that you've already written that you've checked out with other people that is written in a way that is not meant to be heard but is meant to be read so that when people are listening to it they don't really quite understand it. I'm add too, where my son didn't get it from nowhere so I'm one of those people in the audience going wait what are they saying and I kind of my brain kind of tunes out because I can't listen to words that are meant to be read when they're spoken to me. So, you know, anybody wants to change this thing up in this amazing technological age, come up with new ways of teaching, disseminating information, visual. Like I work with visual stuff all the time. I work with coffins. There are these amazing three-dimensional, full-color, open upable, awesome things, right, that tell you all about an ancient individual from the ancient world. You try to describe a complicated object in the written word and then accompany it by pictures as we do in the plates at the end. And you're reading and going, I don't know. And then you go to the place, you don't understand And it's stupid. It's stupid the way we communicate this information. And so my book about these coffins, I plan and I'm doing it right now to do a series of photo essays that are annotated. So the photos will be integrated into my written word and my written word will be right there at the photo. And there's not gonna be, there will be flipping back and forth, I'm sure. But it's not going to be that kind of art historical stupidity of where I have to describe the whole thing for you. And then the object becomes this fetishized reification in my mind. Then we can analyze and talk about it. For those people that can't hack the PhD academic world, there is nothing wrong with you. There is something wrong with our construct. And there is no mistake that this construct is gatekeeping. It is a mechanism of keeping certain people in and certain people out. The American education system reifies that. So we make sure that it's filled with a bunch of white people. Now a bunch of white women in the humanities, great, but it's still very hard for other people to hack all of these inauthentic skills.
2: Yeah, for sure. And like, I totally sympathize with that. I I have a friend, bless him. He's super awesome, but he has it in his mind because of society that he knows that he's good at ancient Greece. That's his thing. And he wants to stake his his life, his career on this thing. He was a little delayed because he didn't come to classics until a bit later. He couldn't get... immediately into a grad program because he didn't have the languages because by the time he graduated sorry he only had like a semester of latin and greek that's not enough and it's like i can see he's trying desperately to get all the stuff and he's spending money that he probably doesn't really have to get to a phd program eventually so it's it's really good to hear people say okay i know you want this thing because you want to be able to say i'm super smart and i have a phd look at me but we really do have to figure out a way in society for you can be respected for your knowledge of ancient Greece without having to be like, look at my shiny piece of paper and tell other people I'm smart. I mean,
1: classics, the worst in terms of this, the gatekeeping is beyond bounds because Egyptology, you can't do it anywhere. There's no, there's no Egyptian to be had except at a dozen universities across the land. We are accustomed to taking students who have had a semester or one year of Middle Egyptian. Yes, gone are the days where the student comes into the program without any Egyptian at all. But now that we're trying to recruit students who are coming from backgrounds who don't have access to to these languages, we are now looking to accept students who don't have any ancient language at all. And that's something that I think we need to do. But how would a classics department do that for a PhD? How would they do it for an MA? There's no way they could do it. You think about what that means, that you need three years of each language pretty much as a minimum to get into a PhD program. What kind of a school does that imply you must have gone to? What does that mean if if you're a Black student who went to an HBCU that's not Howard, which is the only classics department amongst the HBCUs? You just aren't going to have that Latin or Greek. And it's, it's ridiculous. And there's got to be another way of including people without that language barrier being in the way. It's a massive problem. Classics professors who want to change the representation within the field, they know this. But then they go, oh yeah, but to actually have the dialogue within the field, this is the game changer. And so for many classics professors, the only way to change that is to start with education that much earlier for people of certain... Minority backgrounds rather than doing what we already do in Egyptology, which is, oh, you don't have any ancient languages? Okay, come along anyway. Get your two year master's at Memphis or Indiana University, which is cheaper, and then come to us with some language under your belt. And that kind of thing is completely possible for us.
2: I don't know why I didn't think of this earlier, but there are some people that jealously want to cross the threshold and then keep it hard. So, for example, it's I know one person who would very much benefit from us easing requirements to get into programs. And, you know, I think I I wrote a piece, actually, and and I proposed, you know, okay, well, what if we make the languages optional? Because if you know you want to go on and really do this, like, that's fine. But for people who want to get any type of BA, knowledge, whatever, at that basic level, you shouldn't have to be confronted with possibly, you know, heavily weighted language courses towards your GPA. So then that might do horrible things when you're, when you're looking for something else. And then this person I was talking to just said, I don't want to make the requirements easier. And I was like, why? It would help you. You would literally get into your program. And then he's like, because if it made it easier, yeah, okay, I'd get in, but then that degrades the value of the accomplishment. So when I want my PhD, I want to say, well, I had to get all these languages and look at me. And if you want to reach my level, you have to do that too. Why is it that we're, we're open to certain things, but not others in terms of easing access? Like, I don't get that.
1: It's ease of access is not something that human beings are interested in when there's high levels of competition and they want to control resources in a zero-sum game. Even if you're a person who's poor, you still might believe in the American dream. You still might not denigrate Trump for being a super rich white guy if you think that that American dream is available to you too. So why shouldn't you cut taxes for the rich? Because you could someday be a rich person. I'm not saying I understand it personally, but I can understand it anthropologically. Exclusion works because it makes people feel special and like they're part of something that's different. And it's it's for that reason that Egyptian is so very hard to learn. <laughs> it's for that reason that Greek, Latin, maybe less so, but is so very hard to learn. These things were created as hurdles for a reason. Greek is easy in comparison to Egyptian in some ways because the script is alphabetic and it's, uh, you know, that's not really much of a hurdle to get over. You can memorize your signs, you know, pretty much how to get started. Then when people start to get fancy with their vocabulary and different things and grammar, it's going to be a very different game. Egyptian never got to the alphabet for a reason because they wanted it to be as exclusionary as possible. And I'm going to make this analogy now. Let's see if it works. As Egyptian language and culture is getting replaced by Mediterranean language and culture, particularly Greek and Latin, soon to be Arabic, as hieroglyphs are becoming more obscure, less useful, they go baroque in terms of their signs, the amount of signs that are included, and the complication with which they're written. So right at the very end, is when Egyptian hieroglyphs are the most exclusionary. And isn't that interesting? And then they fucking die. Then they, you know, you've got a Christian replacement and you've got different languages coming in, Coptic and and all of these other things and nobody even needs hieroglyphs and Christianity makes them evil. So you don't even need them, right? So one could argue that you have the most boundaries, the most gatekeeping, the most Baroque test taking demands right before the whole game collapses. (laughs) it's just like uh
2: but I I can't go a day in my life without hearing something that just makes me cringe because I'm like why who thought of this stupid stupid system I'm not calling my field or Egyptology stupid but it's just sometimes I'm like okay who did this
1: well the other thing Lexi to think about is I just went through a very long process of reading 60 applications and deciding which two people would get the spots. And I just completed that yesterday. And it, it was a process that started going all the way back in December and completed mid-April, right? That's a long process. And it's a lot of applications that I can't read word to word. I can't read 60 applications beginning to end. And I don't have time. Given that I don't have time, I look at those applications and we just as a faculty decided to make the GRE optional because it's also a gatekeeping mechanism. So that GRE is now optional and you do not have to take it. But some professors were like, I don't know if we're just going to get rid of it entirely. That freaks me out. I did vote to get rid of it entirely, but that is not the way most of my faculty felt. It is optional. You know, the GRE is something you can look at, but you also have to look at the grades. So I'm looking at, you know, somebody's transcript and like, oh my God, a B in Middle Egyptian. The fact that they got to take Middle Egyptian at all is amazing in and of itself, right? Most of the, the students who are applying don't necessarily have access to that level of ancient language. But if I see, you know, less than a top tier as an undergraduate in that language, I'm going to be like, eh. if you, so for anybody who's applying for graduate school, if you have a B in something that is of great importance to your future study, you should explain that in your statement of purpose or somewhere. It should, it should probably be addressed. I'd like to see more of that. But I end up looking at letters of rep, look at grades, I look at I pedigree universities. I don't want to be doing this, but if somebody's coming from a southern state university or I don't or a Cal State versus you know an R1 University of California, then I'm going to automatically judge that. But then the, the UCLA application immediately starts by asking for identity and race. So that I'm immediately asking, is this person just another normal white applicant? Or is this person coming from a different background? And I should be paying attention to that. We immediately start with, and then on page two is whether or not the student is applying for a particular grant called the Cota Robles, which means that your parents didn't go to college, that you would be a first generation college student and that you are coming from an underprivileged background. So then I'm reading that application with that socioeconomic background in mind, but I'm going through grades, different transcripts, letters of rec, student uh, statement, a personal statement. They have to make a diversity statement at UCLA now. It's an intensely confusing situation. And it's, it's not easy to, to figure out who's in and who's out. A lot of it comes down to what the students themselves send in as a writing statement or a writing sample. Can the student communicate to me? What is their own personal statement like? Do they start their personal statement with, since I was a young child, I wanted to be an Egyptologist. I don't care. I don't care if you wanted to be a, an Egyptologist since you were a young child, you really don't care. Please don't start your personal statement with that. I want you to get right to what you think is interesting. And this is what I wanna study, why I wanna study it. Show me you research the university. You can't even research the university and who's doing what. And that Vilika Vendrick is not digging in the Fayum anymore for like 10 years, then I don't know what to tell you. So you, you do that kind of stuff. And then I make all these judgments as I'm reading this application quickly. And then I cut it down to like, okay, these are the ten I want to read again. Then I read them again. But those people that I've thrown out, they're not going to get read right again. <laughs> get I mean, again. that's so, just
2: the hard truth. I mean, it, it's sad and it may be harsh to hear, but you know, in the long run, I think you're doing these people a favor because I think you know what's what. What good does it do to sort of lead someone and say, well, maybe you can make it, only for them to like leave a year in because it's
1: too hard. Well, um, here's the other thing, Lexi, is I am not running a show that is pay for play. If I were reading these applications for an MA program that was receiving funds from students when they took out loans to come to my university, I would be reading this in a whole different way. And I would be trying to maximize as much of my profit and potential as possible. But because I at UCLA as chair have to figure out how to fund each person, there's a limited number of spots. So my decision-making is very different than what it will be at our maximized capitalist universities that are trying to get money from students, have a self-sustaining degree program. I don't have that. That makes my decision-making in many ways much more moral than ethical, but it's just because I find myself in that situation. If I were teaching at a university, and I mentioned Memphis and Indiana before because their MAs are so affordable and good. If I were teaching at that place, I would try to maximize and be entrepreneurial and bring in the right students, but I would probably make the selection a little different.
2: Yeah. I, and that's again, just hard reality of your position, institution, all those things that are really beyond our control. So what would you say to people like me who, okay, I looked at my own creds and I just said, there's no way. I mean, I could try to apply to UCLA, but it's just, I, it's not going to happen for me. And I'd rather just be okay knowing that I, I can't go. And, and, why, and why do you
1: think you can't go? Cause I think, what, what are your degrees now? What are you coming from?
2: Well, I'm coming from classics. I did not Take the ancient languages because I chose to study abroad like three times instead. Um, but yeah. I wanted the life experience and I wanted to travel and I wanted to see the stuff because my skills, I just know that they're, they're different. They're not in like I, I will pick up languages when I have time and when I can and it, they interest me. And so I'm always trying to learn, but doing it in the rigorous way you would need to for school, that's not quite my thing. So I'm a terrible judge of my own skills. So, you know, I can sit here and I can say, well, it's hard to get through like super heavy academic reading for me because. I can read most normal uh, academic speak, but my special skills, I can dumb that down and turn it into something like super easy for people who don't have any background in mm-hmm, this stuff mm-hmm. um so I would love to be able to come really and, and do coffee. like that's just <laughs> awesome um I've always been just in love with them for my entire life but I just I, I know it's not gonna happen for me at least right now I never say never I could be that 40 year old PhD student for right now you know it's not because I don't have the languages I only have the BA I'm honestly into like ancient political thought and ancient politics, foreign relations and stuff so when I was thinking about making the switch people were like oh you should read the Amarna letters then if you, you do like you know, ancient foreign relations with the Arna period. And I was like, yeah, that's awesome. But and it's also, have, I can't make up my mind.
1: <laughs> it's true, but you would do, you would do Hebrew. So you could get the Canaanite part and then you'd have to do Akkadian. And you put them together for Canaanite, Akkadian. UCLA is a powerhouse for, for that. And then you would work with me and Bill win and I can see the dissertation for me before my eyes, but, and Hebrew is not, you know, you could get going with that in, in a year and then move on to Akkadian's harder. Akkadian's tough, man. But, so, uh, so but then assuming the problem? your problem, Lexi, is that what you want to do is in the written word uh, rather than it would be, have been spoken if you could go back in time, but it's short of devel- developing a time machine. You have to go to the written word and that's a problem.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I just, I have a bunch of conflicting things. If I really sat down and thought about it, I could come out with something and make it in a very, create your own major, create your own path in a way that's doable, but not just ridiculous. If I really sat down to do it, I could, because I know how to do that. My brain's good at making the impossible out of, you know, whatever. But okay. Let's say though, that I'm not going to switch into Egyptology in the next five years, at least maybe later who knows? If I'm someone who's like, I really would have loved to be in that PhD program, not only because then you have access to working with scholars who really know their stuff. And then maybe that's, you know, chances to go do field work or travel with them and like have them take you and show you around these places. Is there an avenue for a different branch of academic tourism? If I want to go to Egypt, I don't want to just go do the random touristy stuff. That doesn't interest me at all. Now, if someone's like, this Egyptologist here will go and take you on their tour of Egypt. So you can learn things. I would 100% like be like, yeah, please (laughs) take me to Egypt with you in like a suitcase and show me around There
1: room for that. Right now. No, because I have so many grad students. So if I get to Egypt, I got to take those grad students with me in some way, shape or form. Uh, yeah, it, that's not possible. And also because I have this pesky child of mine, it's hard for me to get to Egypt for longer than three weeks go because parenting and travel don't always coexist peacefully. You know, it just, again, it goes back to the skills that you have. So you're telling me, oh, I don't have any tech skills or I don't have this or that. And you're here doing a podcast with me In which you're having a really intelligent and interesting conversation about how to be in the world, and the person that I think you would most be like is somebody like Ali Ward, who's created ology. That's a really good direction for somebody like you to go in. If it were somebody else that I were talking to who had a different set of skills, then I would make a different suggestion. But you you want to work with what you've got, and you already have some good assets, so I would continue along this path and just. You're already broadening beyond classics and going into Egypt and other places. So just keep going broader and see what you can do. As for other people, I don't know what their skills are. So it depends. If you're a good baker, you know what to do. <laughs> I'm
2: good at photography. Can someone like sneak me in a tomb? I'll take pictures for you. I have
1: photo- photographers all the time. And right now the grad students, I don't know how good their photographic skills are, but it's the thing that I'm most in demand of, good photographic skills so that I can get my coffins shot in an efficient, clear, colorful manner. I'll keep you in mind.
2: So hi, I've never been to Egypt. I've always (laughs)
1: wanted to go, but I don't want to go
2: alone because it's terrifying. So hi. Also, I just know when I go to Egypt, people are going to get really mad at me because all I'm going to be doing is being that person who stands for 10 minutes, just taking every intricate picture I can think of, all the angles and the... Yeah, people don't want to travel with me because I'm the one that bogs them down with the camera. That's... But you're
1: you're there on the cutting edge of when... Egyptology was a thing 50 years ago. Just finding a book that was legit Egyptology was impossible. Now you can go online and get Gardner's Egyptian grammar with the full sign list with no problem whatsoever. And technology has made all of these things available to people everywhere on their phone, in the computer device in their pocket. And there's dictionaries and there's all kinds of things that make these things accessible. So in other words, you're on the sea change of an exclusive field about an exclusive subject that is being made more inclusive. You're one of the inclusivity influencers. And I think I would, I would just embrace that and see what, what you can do with it. When I was coming up, I didn't need to have Middle Egyptian because there wasn't the opportunity for me to do that, but I needed to have a killer GRE and excellent grades and French and German, no Arabic, French and German. And when I started teaching, I was using slides and, you know, putting things on index cards. And yes, we had computers, but, you know, barely. Yeah, it's a, it's a different world now that allows for so much more access. And libraries themselves are not. It used to be who had access to a library was were the people that made the great research. And now that's not the case because the library is in, in everyone's pocket, in a sense.
2: That's true. Hey, digital humanities, it's awesome. It's something I'm really passionate about. That I mean, I think that just goes hand in hand with like open access, right? Can, if you can take the stuff and you can put it online and make it easy to read, I've definitely learned to be comfortable with my own skill
1: set. But the, the conclusion to this, and this is what I tell my graduate students, is you're not going to adjunct. You're not going to do some shit job just because you're so in love with the subject matter that you're willing to do it for anything. No, you're not. You are instead going to get a job that treats you with respect, pays you benefits, and is a career and then you just do this thing that you love for whatever weird, cracked reason. We love this. You do that on the side as you can. And as you're able, you, you know, you don't let your, your love destroy you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> More people need to hear that. Cause I can't tell you how many people I swear I meet who are just like, I would do anything for this love of mine. And actually one person who loved politics so much, who I'm um, was friends with, uh, when I entered in DC, I speak to her now. I'm like, so do you, do you feel your soul still intact? Are you, you,
1: you, mm-hmm. you okay there?
2: You know? And they're like, I-, I don't know if I still love this thing. I'm, I'm kind of
1: dying. And I'm like, yeah. It's interesting. Millennials curse too, that you have to choose something you love. What color is your parachute and what is your passion? And It's like you're supposed to marry the love of your life and stay married to the person for 70 years and you can't ever change what that is. And there's a lot of, (laughs) as somebody who's been divorced, there's heartache in the world is real and you do fall out of love with things and with people. And that's a normal and natural thing. There's so much pressure on, especially the millennial generation to identify with your work as your value and your purpose in life that drive to create something important, to be something important, to be proud of what you do is so intertwined with work that we are willing to go into deep debt for it, to buy our way into programs. And now that is possible. We are willing to leave our families and friends, not have families and friends, just work constantly to get this thing that is isn't necessarily going to love us back in the way that we think it will. And most of those things are driven by, you know, if I'm going to get all Marxist and shit, but by a real capitalist drive that your work is your identity, your work is your soul, and you should love your work. You don't always love your work. I do exactly what I want, you know, this amazing job that so many people want to do most of my days. I am not in love with my work. And writing for me is very hard. You know, I'm pacing around the room and I'm yelling at whatever king I'm writing about next, or I have an article that is almost finished and I'm just like, ah, screw it. I don't feel like doing it right now. And work is always work. You shouldn't always have to be in love with your work. And a lot of those things need to be exposed for the toxicity that they are. In many ways, people have been sold a bill of goods that being able to be an Egyptologist will solve all of my problems or having a PhD will make me suddenly have self-worth and my family will love me. So much of this stuff is wrapped up in our own conflicting ideas of what makes a person valuable in a world that values people less and less and their labor less and less.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I noticed the, the change. I mean, and it's not just academia, it, it's pervasive in society. Cause I think when I was traveling The first question after like, what's your name? Most often either I got or I would just notice people saying was not like all these questions about, oh, who are you as a person? How are you doing? No, no, no. Everyone skips that and you just go from, hi, my name is to, so what do you do? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why is that the first question we ask people? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's ridiculous because then it's okay. Well, then if you're skipping from, hi, my name is Lexi. I do this then you're automatically skipping to, oh, so I'm going to make a judgment call based on like how much you make or how much, you know, clout you're perceived to have. And I imagine it only gets harder when you have a PhD because then- Yeah, because then you're
1: you're supposed to have this job here or there and people know how hard you have worked for that PhD and how much you've suffered and sacrificed. A PhD is in the humanities is a very lonely endeavor and it's something that cracks many a soul. You get through that and you get that PhD in hand and then there's no jobs out there in the way that you thought there would be, even though you knew. You thought you would be different. You thought that the cute actor would fall in love with you when he saw you, right? That they would recognize your brilliance and you won't be one of those people. You'll get the job. So many people are realizing that the system is well and truly broken, our higher education system and how it treats people. I'm not saying that there weren't, there aren't teaching jobs out there for the PhDs that I'm training, but most of them are in circumstances that I can pretty quickly talk them out of and give them kind of like in Lord of the Rings in the extended version, when Arwen is gonna stay with Aragon and become like an elfin elfin bride with no Grey Havens to go to. And Elrond is like, you or bitch of years are spent, you know, and then she walks in the trees and she's all lonely and dead. I will do that speech for all of my PhDs. And I will tell them that this is what adjuncting will get you. And I will have the long, lonely years of your life are spent and you don't get to write and you don't get to do anything. If you want to do that for love, whatever that is go for it but otherwise i would rather you get a job with benefits doing something that has nothing to do with egyptology and then you do this shit for fun on the side and that's fine we need to stop conflating our value as people with how hard we can work you know where else i see this and i just posted this on twitter and again but it was about a journalist who said this is why i'm leaving journalism because journalism is very much the same what used to be a good gig that paid your living for you and a wife and two kids to work your beat and and figure out your your stories and be a good investigative journalist, you know, and break the Nixon Watergate story or whatever, is now a horrifying rape of the soul as you work article to article, piece by piece, trying to pay your rent, doing seriously hard work, trying to read way too much, just like a grad student, so you can be prepared for the interview with the, the Sackler family or whoever it is you're trying to interview. And yes, there are some interview journalists like Ann Applebaum or something like that, who can write books and make a living off of their book contracts. Most journalists, just their work is tough. It's a daily slog and they are not treated with respect. And, what, and, and then they see their stuff just getting rechurned by other people and other names getting put on it and it's not even theirs anymore. And I see a lot of similarity between the craft of writing in journalism and the craft of writing in academia the kind of training you have to go through to get to each of these places and how most of the time it's really not even worth it because the community of practice is broke. It's just effing people over right and left. And until that community of practice loses a good third of its weight and sees a lot of its pay for play universities go under as they should and starts to focus more on funding state universities for everyone and not just white people, then we'll actually start to see a university system that could treat people with respect again. As for the journalism, it's not my game. That's not my jam. I don't know what's going to save the local papers that have all closed down. That kind of thing needs to be resurrected in its own way, too. We certainly don't lack for information, but we certainly lack for treating people who produce that information with respect.
2: For sure. And I'm coming from Mizzou, which has continually either the first or second top rated uh, journalism program in the country. I think, I, you know, I had a billion friends in journalism and I would constantly ask them when I was in school and I'd be like, you know, hey, how's it going? What's it like? I hear things coming out of the J school all the time. And it was really telling to me when I had a friend of mine literally just look at me and say, I carve out a good 10 to 15 minutes every single day before this one class to go in the bathroom and cry. And I was like, wait, what? Like, did you, you know, are you working on a hard project? And she's like, no, she's like preventatively because I know how hard the classes and how just like shitty the environment is. She was like, no, I literally go in the bathroom. It's my scheduled time. And I cry. And then I go to the class. And then if I need to cry after I will. And I was like, Then why are you doing this? Like you are clearly miserable. But then again, you know, it's like you talk to them and you see in their eyes the same thing that I saw a lot of my friends who they were miserable through college because they couldn't do something that like made them happy because they just weren't convinced. I have to do this because I have to get a job and I have to make money and I have to do something that will contribute in whatever way it's a problem I I just I feel lucky because I found what I like and I was okay with the fact that I was like I probably won't get a job in this you don't make money you don't go into this for the money Mm -hmm. for sure I was lucky because I'm okay with that but yeah some some accountant uh, majors friends of mine every day just like that silent desperation of help I'm miserable
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that a lot of people in grad school in in Egyptology or classics don't feel the same, but they can't admit it because it's like the husband that everyone told you not to marry that you married anyway. (laughs) So you (laughs) talk about
2: it. And and obviously, I I can't speak for everyone else, but you know, for me, as like the also learning difference child with super ADD and all the other accompanying lovely things that go with that, yeah. It was rough. And even when I found what I wanted to do and I was one of the lucky ones, I was still just like, man, this is kind of kicking my ass. This is really hard. You know, how do people do it? I could not imagine it, you know, but then then I was like doing all kinds of weird stuff. At one point, I think it was like after freshman year, it was over. I'm going to do this thing where I'm going to transfer to Brown and I'm going to create my own major for Egyptology and classics together. And no one else can do what I'm doing because it's going to come from my brain. And then I'm going to be so happy. I'm so happy I did not transfer and do that because that really would have messed me up. I think my life just feels like one crazy idea after another.
1: But uh, Yeah, so many people's lives are. And I suppose the other thing that makes people so desperately unhappy is thinking that work should make them happy. And it that's not where happiness derives work can be great and it can be joyful. And I love my work. I love it. And I work too much. I also hope to reach a point in my life where I don't have to work quite this hard and I can enjoy things a little bit more and not be slogging Mm -hmm. and producing so much and consuming a little bit more and thinking a little bit more. But if anything, whatever you do cross boundaries, within that thing so that you aren't afraid of having to leave it. Things change all the time. Your cheese will get moved. There is no there is no point in thinking that it will not. And you're going to have to go and find out where they've moved it to, whoever they are. Cross boundaries and look at all kinds of things outside and never put all of your eggs in one basket.
2: Which is really good advice, which is why I always tell people, hey, if you can get to it, you should go to conferences. I always tried to do that it's very hard because you know they're like oh so what is your research on what are you working on what's your dissertation on i'm like i don't have one i try to
1: go to as few conferences as i can now i like them but when i go to the egyptology conference i can't make it across the room without knowing one of the 500 people in there it's not you know if i carve out a place for myself in a bar or something like that okay i try to make moves not when everyone else is making the move at the conference because i won't make it to wherever i want to go I instead try to move from room to room while the talks are ongoing so that I have more freedom of movement. Otherwise, I can't, I can't walk around. I do love going to conferences like SAAs or AIAs. People don't know me there, so I'm able to kind of walk around. But if I'm at a conference with a bunch of Egyptologists, game over.
2: Really? Okay, because I know so many young people who are kind of like, oh, I want to go here.
0: Ready to pop the question? In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: Her speak or do a panel. So they're like signing up for every RC or ASOR conference. Like, is she going to go? Is she going to go? Is she going to do it? And I'm like... I don't know. I hope. I don't know. I don't know how these people choose to go to what conferences. Just look at the thing. But I I did see you're doing that Archeocon,
1: right? I am. No, I go. I go to the conferences. I speak at many of them. I'm now serving on a committee of ASOR. So ASOR is my new conference home. So yeah, I'm I'm around. I I like ASOR because it's bigger and not as many people know me. It's much more anonymous and that's awesome. I like that. And I like going to hear people speak on stuff that's not always Egypt as well. Oh,
2: okay. Well, luckily there's so many different classic things happening. It feels like every other week. So as always, it's been a pleasure being able to have you on again. I'm so sad though. I'm like, (sighs) Uh, um, (laughs) thanks
1: for having me on. And, um, maybe I'll start doing some of my Facebook live YouTube things again. I don't know. We'll see. Um, I need space to think, to be able to do that. So we'll see if I can ever get any thoughts out.
0: Trireme transit is now departing ancient Office Hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.